Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco 24. This week, it's all about ABBA. We pay a visit to ABBA Voyage in London. Because of the environment we wanted to create, which is this existence where the line between what's real and what's not gets blurred, where the border between digital and reality is erased, we needed to control the space to such an extent that we had to build our own building. Plus, Monaco's Andrew Tuck takes a ride on the Elizabeth Line. That's why we're attracted to cities, we're attracted to transport projects, whether they're airports or train stations. It's just try and help ease that experience of travelling from A to B, because it's so rewarding, as we know, we all want to explore. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in London. Monaco's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, hops on an eastbound Elizabeth Line train with renowned industrial designer Julian Maynard for a tour of the newest addition to London's transport network. Here we're coming out of that consistent level of design into the bespoke architectural space. And we, we looked at lots of how do we do those transitions. I think this one was almost named the Pope's Hat. So there's, there's various transition points of the portals. Yeah, it's almost like walking through a city gate, which is, of course, very relevant in London with the old walls. But it's like there's this arch that you walk through with the concrete panels slightly adapted. Again, a really beautiful space to head through. So you can see this is, we're at street level here. And then we're going to pass down. We get a sense of the datum of the street. So immediately we know we're going under the street. And that's quite a purposeful sign, isn't it? It is saying Elizabeth Line starts here. And then we come on to the platform here. A nice little moving map as well, not just telling you the times the train's arriving. You get some sense of, you see the, the stations passing by, you, you understand you're definitely on the right platform. And what I've noticed about this legible London maps, if you've got time to dwell, and I've noticed this observing people, is that while they're waiting for the train, people naturally gravitate towards these. And while they're waiting, they just, they just have a look at where they are and what they might look at, what the sites we're looking here. Oh, I didn't know the Guildhall was there. You know, I'm aware of the Barbican. Immediately, people can orientate themselves while waiting for a train where they've never had that opportunity until they get almost out on the street. And that's why you always see outside stations, groups of people almost like discharged out of that ticket hall and looking like, where do I go next? This is all about journey planning. And also I think important when you're exiting the station, that it makes you think, it's fine, I can walk. You don't think, I need to find another mode of transport to get to my... My destination, even if it's only if it's 500 metres away, many people often seem to jump in a cab because they're just a bit nervous about how to get somewhere. So again, just encouraging you to use walking alongside your Elizabeth Lyon experience. And it's all about giving people the right information to enable them to explore cities, explore districts. You know, I think it's, it's sort of, it's the core part of how we're thinking of, of designing our cities and, and the elements of engagement with it's people. It's nice that you, you've even thought about what you do with people when they get off your trains, how you hand them back to the city and how you get them to explore it and understand it. 
Yeah, well, I think that's central is this user experience approach on the end-to-end journey. It was a, been a passion for me when I was back at the RCA when I did a technology project, and that's how I came to work for Grimshaw, is about looking at how can we improve the ticketing system, how can we improve that experience of travel, because I think that we'd almost, this is back in 1988-90, regressed of the experience in travel. You know, everyone said, how do we bring back a, a more... I don't know, intuitive, a bit more encompassing way of travelling. It doesn't have to be so arduous. And in our work, that's why we're attracted to cities. We're attracted to transport projects, whether they're airports or train stations. It's just try and help ease that experience of travelling from A to B because it's so rewarding, as we know. We all want to explore. And I always remember when someone came for an interview and I said, why are you interested in wayfinding? And she said, well, the uh, most frightening experience was when I was a child and I was lost and I couldn't find my way out of this station and I'd lost my parents. And that was a really powerful emotion which I've never forgotten. And that's what got me interested in, in wayfinding. And I think that really resonated with me. There's nothing more stressful in not knowing where you're going. And it can put you off a place, can't it? It can put you off going somewhere. And I think if we can just do one small element into refining that experience for people then we're that's quite a rewarding job for a designer that's almost a, a perfect fine line because we're now going as individuals as travelers or on Elizabeth's line but we also know where we're going as a city and uh, hopefully the country as well because this is a, a really amazing piece of industrial design thank you for giving us an incredible tour thank you very much indeed Thank you, Andrew and Julian, and I've been on the Elizabeth line. You know, it's a yes for me. Let's head to Ukraine now. Travel to the country, and one of the more miraculous things you will discover is something most of us take for granted. You have phone and data reception. Despite Russia's ongoing invasion, Ukraine's digital infrastructure has held up surprisingly well. While in Kyiv, Monaco's Chris Chermak spoke to the country's minister for digital transformation. The most important thing we did before the invasion was to build a system of cyber defense, and for the moment, all of our systems are working properly. This is Mikhailo Fedorov, Ukraine's Minister for Digital Transformation. He's a man in demand. We're the sixth of 15 meetings, and it's only just gone past midday. Such is the life of a minister in wartime. When you joined the government, did you ever imagine yourself being in this kind of situation? Of course, I didn't imagine there'd be a war. I imagined that I would be at war with officials and bureaucrats. From the very beginning, I've been in this bureaucratic struggle, but I think that when it comes to reforming the system, we were winning. And the same will happen in the war against Russia. How challenging has it been to keep the internet functioning, to keep communications functioning across the country in this time? What was crucial is that we have a market economy. We did not have a state or company monopoly over the internet. We have a lot of providers competing and who are interested in providing unfettered access to their consumers. Fedorov tells us that Ukraine has been quick to repair connections where access was cut. And then there's Starlink table-sized terminals that offer internet connections via satellites and have been provided by Elon Musk of Tesla. 
Fedorov says more than 13,000 Starlink terminals are spread across Ukraine. But it's hardly just Elon Musk keeping things going. Ukraine has a history of digital literacy and companies at the forefront of digital trends. The country is also known for providing back-office services to major tech companies. For Fedorov, these connections have served Ukraine well during the war. In Ukraine, we already had a high level of digital literacy. We also launched a special tax regime for IT professionals, and we had established contacts with a lot of big tech companies. So when the war started, and we needed to enlist the help of those contacts, we didn't have to start from scratch. We were already in touch. So that's step one, keeping the internet running and keeping your cyber defenses up. Step two has been providing essential services for Ukrainian citizens, even in wartime. The most important service we launched allows people to apply for financial support in areas affected by the fighting. Another tool allows for people to ask for a refund for their damaged property. And the third tool is called Chivaro, which means enemy. That allows people to report the movement of the enemy. All of these new services he mentions are part of a state-funded app on your phone called DIA. It was launched before the war and is now used by 18 million Ukrainians for everything from paying taxes to getting subsidies for small businesses to paying speeding tickets. Fedorov, himself a former entrepreneur, says the app has been expanded to include digital identification documents, and he's clearly proud of its functions. What makes us unique is actually we are sourcing our inspiration not from how government services work in other countries, but how businesses work efficiently, how they can be friendly for the user. We want to do the same with the state services. So that's step two, keep essential services running online. Step three involves tackling disinformation and documenting war crimes happening across the country. One aspect of this has been providing police and the military with the digital tools to document war crimes as they happen. But Fedorov says this is also where Ukrainian citizens have perhaps played the biggest role, both in getting the message out and in documenting the aftermath of attacks. We have launched some digital campaigns to support the brand of Ukraine, such as Be Brave Like Ukraine or United24. But citizens are also generating a lot of content that is spreading virally. That also helps to get the message out. So it's not just our effort, but the effort of our citizens. So that's step three. Keep a record of what's been happening. Step four? Well, that would be reforming and rebuilding the country for after the war. We want to be able to provide all public services without the participation of bureaucrats. We want to make all services automated, and digitalization is the best instrument to achieve that. We enacted similar reforms in the construction industry, where at many stages there is now no participation of bureaucrats or officials. There is one final stage. Step five is about the future, serving as an example to other countries. We see from surveys of Ukrainians who had to flee abroad that one of the things they appreciate most about Ukraine compared to other countries is our level of digitalization. And I think it's a great achievement that we managed to obtain in just a couple of years. With Ukraine having been granted official candidate status by the European Union, Fedorov says he believes Ukraine has something to offer, particularly the state-backed DIA app. 
Fedorov says he's in talks with European neighbors about how they too can develop the application for their own countries. And just final question, what do you love about Ukraine personally? What do you love or what do you find most special about Ukraine? It's people. We have a lot of really creative, curious people. The level of creativity and new ideas that they have is just incredible. This is why I believe that even in these circumstances, with a common idea that unites them, Ukrainians can really become an economic miracle for the world. You are listening to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We stay in Ukraine now to take a look at the role of journalism during the war. Monaco's Carlota Rebelo spoke to Katerina Sergatskova, an editor who founded the 2402 Fund when the invasion began, providing medical training, protective equipment and risk assessment courses to Ukrainian journalists, who suddenly had to trade their usual bits of culture, design or similar to become frontline reporters. The fund has now evolved into financing independent journalism too, and has so far provided equipment and training to over 200 journalists in the country. I'm a Ukrainian journalist. I used to live uh, in, uh, in the east of Ukraine uh, all my life. So my hometown, Bakhmut, is uh, now in the front line. And um, at the first day of war, we had to leave our places with my colleagues because uh, we understand that we uh, can't um, work in this uh, war situation because it's too dangerous for journalists. Uh, we know a lot of uh, situations when um, in Donetsk and Luhansk uh, journalists uh, uh, were killed uh, or uh, prisoned because of their work. So we decided that uh, all our staff uh, need to be relocated from the East uh, because of this danger. Obviously, as everyone says here, Ukraine has been at war for eight years. Mm -hmm. what, what was that like? What was the security situation like for you? How did you protect yourself and continue reporting over the last eight years? Mm -hmm. It was an uh, active fight uh, in uh, uh, 2014 and uh, 2015, uh, but then the active uh, fight stopped and we lived in our hometowns and uh, it was safe for us. Uh, we work, we tell people about uh, uh, how, um, uh, how it was developing and um, it was a lot of projects, uh, new buildings, new roads, new uh, social uh, projects. Uh, and uh, we thought that uh, East have a chance to be, to live, to, to develop. And um, we have a war. Uh, people were killed in this war. And uh, eight years it was a war. But uh, uh, now it's a completely different situation. It's uh, not a local war. It's uh, a war uh, for all our country and to all the Europe, I think. It's, uh, it's completely different. Talk to us a bit about uh, the media organization and maybe looking back a few years, we'll bring it to now uh, soon, but how did it come up? And mm -hmm. before you were forced to leave, mm -hmm. what were the main stories you were telling? Uh, we have uh, an online journal uh, called uh, Svoyi. It means like ours, our people. 
and uh, it was um, funded uh, by uh, um, agency uh, of media growth called Abo. It's, it's our office. And uh, we had a lot of stories, and we have now, about people from the East. And uh, it, um, it's about the people who live there and uh, the people who are IDPs. Um, yes. So uh, we didn't have um, news in uh, traditional, traditional media. And we have uh, just uh, this journal format formats uh, like uh, people's stories, uh, stories of uh, cities. And uh, we talk a lot of um, success stories when uh, people find their place uh, after this um, relocation in uh, 2014. So uh, we're trying to explain how people live in the East and uh, who they are. So it was our mission. Uh, now in this uh, a big war, we have another mission. Uh, we understand that uh, we can help people uh, to survive in this war. So we try to uh, explain them how to evacuate, where they uh, can have this support and uh, describe the stories uh, of people who are evacuated uh, and uh, uh, try to start the new life in new countries or new cities in Ukraine. You launched also in English on your site, perhaps to that point that you're just describing. How important is it? Why Why did you feel it was necessary to, to tell that story to a broader audience in English about what, what is happening in mm -hmm. the East? Uh, we understood that it's... Uh, there is a powerful uh, Russian propaganda all over the world, in Ukraine as well, but all over the world in uh, English-speaking countries, in uh, in Europe. So uh, we decided to tell the truth about this war by our stories of witnesses. And uh, we decided to translate uh, the most uh, important stories that our my colleagues uh, collect in English, to give a possibility all uh, to people all over the world uh, know the truth how people survive and uh, how people die in this uh, in this war and uh, we try to get contacts uh, contacts with um, foreign journalists and they uh, take our stories in english and translate them to japanese uh, to other other languages uh, and uh, present them to their audience. So it, it's uh, very important to us that our stories have this uh, long, long life. And on this week's Foreign Desk Explainer, we ask, why is Serbia irate over license plates? Kosovo intends to implement a policy that requires drivers in the country to use Kosovan license plates. But Serbia isn't happy. Andrew Muller explains what this is really about on this week's show. 
Circa 2004, your correspondent spent a morning at a border crossing between Serbia and Kosovo, not far from the Kosovar town of Podijevo. Footnote, though Kosovo had been effectively independent since the war of five years previously, it had not at this point formally declared independence, so everyone working on the border was pretending it wasn't a border, but what they smirkingly referred to as an administrative boundary line. Anyway, I'd been speaking to members of the bewilderingly multinational police force attached to the United Nations Interim Mission in Kosovo, or UNMIC. At this particular post, American cops were cooperating affably enough with Czech and Slovak soldiers, all commanded by a cheerful Russian colonel. Those were the days, etc. The Swedish captain who'd driven me from Pristina suggested we have a coffee at a roadside cafe so we could enjoy a curious local spectacle. We didn't have to wait long. A red Yugo coupe, which had just cleared border formalities, parked alongside us. The driver got out, fished a screwdriver from his trousers and removed the Serbian license plates. He then opened his boot, threw the Serbian plates in, retrieved the Kosovo equivalents and bolted them onto his car before proceeding. Which is by way of illustrating that people in Kosovo, its majority Albanians and its minority Serbs, have been accustomed for some while to living double, if not parallel, lives. This past weekend, an attempt to resolve an aspect of this, specifically the license plate aspect, went closer than you would want to think to starting a decent-sized war. Kosovo's government had proposed, starting midnight on Monday, to begin implementing long-pending rules that would compel people in Kosovo still using Serbian licence plates to replace them with Kosovo licence plates. Hundreds of ethnic Serbs organised cars, trucks and tractors into improvised roadblocks near border crossings. There were reports of shots being fired, but it is unclear as of this broadcast whether these were actually fired at anybody or anything, or just making noise. Dismantling the barricades in a bid to lower tensions. In the north of Kosovo, close to the border with Serbia, roadblocks made of trucks and heavy machinery are being moved on under NATO supervision. K4, the NATO-led peacekeeping force, about 3,500 strong, which has been operating in Kosovo since the 1999 war, stepped up patrols by land and air. K4 also issued a stern statement, which translated broadly as a warning to all concerned to wind their necks in before someone showed them the sharper edge of K4. Mandate. Serbia's President Aleksandar Vucic made a non helpful speech blustering about how Serbia would, quote, pray for peace and seek peace, but there will be no surrender and Serbia will win. My request today to everyone is to try to preserve the peace at almost any cost. I am making one more attempt to ask everyone once again. Ask the Albanians to come to their senses, to ask the Serbs not to fall for provocations and not to do anything that could lead to conflict. If the newcomer to this row surmised that everybody couldn't possibly be getting this wound up about license plates, the newcomer would be right. What everyone is getting this wound up about is what the license plates represent. Serbia has never accepted Kosovo's sovereignty. 
At the risk of tempting fate, Serbia regards Kosovo much as Russia does Ukraine or China does Taiwan, a temporarily rogue province. Though much of Kosovo's ethnic Serb population left after the 1999 war or after a series of anti-Serb attacks in 2004, there are perhaps 80 to 100,000 or so Serbs remaining, largely but not exclusively concentrated in Kosovo's north, near the border with Serbia. In the larger Serb enclaves like the north side of the city of Mitrovica, people ignore the Kosovar state and its institutions, edicts and documents as far as possible. Do you recognise Kosovo as a country? Uh, it's a very hard question. We are part of Serbia. Because if I talk uh, about the Kosovo Republic, people here, they don't like that. And now they don't like me. Kosovo's line is that the license plate thing is a perfectly reasonable administrative tidying up, an overdue implementation of a protocol on freedom of movement between Kosovo and Serbia, which Serbia agreed to in 2011. Today, officially, the integrated border management agreement is being implemented. First at two border crossing points, Merdere and Yarinja, then on the 31st of December, it will be implemented in Berniak and Control. Serbia is choosing to interpret it, or pretending to choose to interpret it, as something altogether more sinister. President Vucic has suggested that it is ethnic cleansing disguised as bureaucracy, somewhat absurdly likening it to Operation Storm, the 1995 Croatian army assault on the largely ethnically Serb portion of that country. Three days later, his army began shelling the rebel Serbs' capital, Knin. As to why Vucic is taking this line, there's a simple answer and a more complicated one. The simple answer is that Vucic, who was, during the 1999 war, Minister of Information under Serbian President, later indicted war crime suspect Slobodan Milosevic, is cranking out the paranoid, melodramatic self-pity which underpins nationalist populism everywhere and in Serbia more than in most places. The more complicated and more concerning answer is that Vucic is doing so with an amount of encouragement from Russia, which doesn't recognise Kosovo either and has been stirring the Balkan pot not just on this front, but also in Republika Srpska, the disgruntled Serb-governed entity within neighbouring Bosnia-Herzegovina. Russia's motivations are not difficult to discern. A crisis elsewhere in Europe would suit Moscow nicely just now. Kosovo, under some pressure from the US and the EU, has agreed to postpone the new license plate regime for a month. What is important to say on behalf of the European Union is that everyone involved in this needs to remain calm and any uncoordinated and unilateral actions that jeopardize the stability and security on the ground and which impede the freedom of movement of all citizens there need to stop immediately. Given Kosovo's hopes of applying for EU membership this year and the EU's ardent desire to avoid any conflagration in the vicinity, this may well end up being the first kick of the can down what may turn out to be a very long road. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. 
over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You are listening to The Curator, a weekly highlight show here on Monaco 24. The ABBA Voyage concert recently opened to the public in London. The concert sees Agnetha, Bjorn, Benny and Anifrid perform digitally with a 10-piece band during a residency that is due to run until May next year. On this special edition of the Monaco Weekly, Georgina Godwin meets the world-class creative team. Lead producer Svana Gisler, known for her work with David Bowie and Beyoncé, and producer Ludwig Andersson, who worked across Mamma Mia. The pair tell us about the background to the show, give us more information on the custom design venue, review a little of the technological wizardry behind the performance, and explain how the magic of ABBA is celebrated every night. I am Ludwig Andersson, and I am one of two producers of ABBA Voyage, and we're right now sitting in the ABBA Arena at Pudding Mill Lane in East London. I'm Svana Gisla. I am the other producer of ABBA Voyage. So let's begin at the beginning. How did it begin? Six years ago, an idea was brought to our offices in Stockholm, which means ABBA's offices, an idea that it could be possible to recreate human beings in the digital world. Originally, that was it. And usually, ABBA, who's been saying no to things for 40 years, which is part of their way of working, they for once thought, yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. Let's have a look at that. And to make a very long story very short, we did have a look at that, and we continued having a look at it for six years, and here we are. The first couple of years were spent in research and development trying to look at what's out there, what does exist, what technology does exist. And once we realized what technology there was, we started talking about, well, what can we do with that? And should we do anything with that? And once we decided, yes, we want to do something with that, what is that thing? And then we went into full production three years ago, maybe, and started talking and planning and one thing led to another and uh, and one tends to forget actually how things happen but all I know is that it's been six years and here we are. And I mean I guess in that six years technology must have continued to improve and advance. Oh yeah technology moves incredibly fast. At some point you've just got to put a stick in the ground and go okay we're going in at this entry point and we're sticking with that. The technology we use is, is, is not new. We didn't invent it. It's motion capture and it's ILM's CGI in, in a way, but it's, it's the scale of it that's new, it's, it's how we use it that is new. It's the incredible level of perfection that they've achieved with that technology that is quite groundbreaking and that requires a lot of time and a little bit of money and a very, very clear creative vision. It sort of becomes an exercise in restraint in a way when you start off with a blank sheet and, and tell yourself that everything's available to you, then it becomes an exercise in, in breaking down what it is you actually need and leaving the rest behind, if that makes sense. So just describe to me what it is that a member of the audience is actually seeing when we sit here in this extraordinary auditorium. It's simple, really. It's a concert. And anyone coming to this place, I am pretty sure, will experience a concert. Now, it's a concert unlike any other in the sense that 
Well, one has to start from the beginning, and that was that when we realized that what we wanted to do, we wanted to put ABBA in a concert environment to perform to people in the way we wanted to do it, we realized quite early on that we're going to have to build our own building. Because the amount of technology and the amount of, of light and sound and all those kinds of fixtures that we needed to, to make real the vision that we had could, one, not be moved quickly, so this was never going to be a quick touring thing, and two, be because of the environment we wanted to create, which is this existence where the line between what's real and what's not gets blurred, where the border between digital and reality is erased, we needed to control the space to such an extent that we had to build our own building. Mm. So what you come and see here is a concert, but it's a, it's a super concert. It's a concert, uh, all enveloping, all senses included kind of concert. What are we actually watching? Are they holograms? No, they're not holograms. They are digital people. We haven't invented anything new in that sense. It's motion capture technology, uh, digital characters. But it is the space they are in and the environment they are in where nothing... I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to... And we've been trying to describe what this is for a long time. You can imagine all the interviews we did leading up to the opening night and, and all the talks we've been having about trying to describe this. The truth is, you, it, it's impossible. One has to come here and, and see this for yourself. Otherwise, you, you won't... I, I can't do it justice by trying to explain what it is you see other than that you are in something that seems to be something wonderful, judging from the audience reactions so far. So sitting here as a member of the audience, what I was seeing was ABBA in their heyday, very clear to me that it couldn't possibly be them, and you were aware that somehow it wasn't quite real, but it was pretty real. What would you add to that? I, I think that's pretty spot on. I think you sit down and you know full well that uh, they're not there. You know, you can tell, but so your brain is telling you they're not there, and your eyes are going, well... I beg to differ because I'm looking at them. And your brain goes, yeah, but you know they're not there. And your eyes goes, well, I'm, I'm looking at them, so I'm just going to go with that. You hopefully settle in and, and just uh, <laughs> go with the, the emotions that the journey takes you on. And, and we get asked a lot about technology when we get asked about the show because it seems to be what people get fascinated by. But for us, we were never fascinated by the technology. It's a vehicle for something much, much, much more important that was the vision really which was not just to have ABBA on stage and make them believable and all of that it was to make the audience feel something mm. and if you don't sit here and feel something then it doesn't really matter what we've done if we would have failed I believe in angels something good in And I'm sorry to bang on about this, but he was talking about sort of pre-opening publicity. And of course, we all saw those pictures of the four members of ABBA wired up and basically being measured and every bit of them sort of, I suppose, rehearsing what we would eventually see. If you could just explain that a little. Yeah, so we spent five weeks in Stockholm with the four ABBAs where we basically sucked 
the soul out of them <laughs> in a digital sense. So we covered them in dots and tight overalls and, and helmets and cameras. And, and uh, we put them on stage in a very, very bright, unforgiving light that gets very tiring to be in after a few minutes. And we made them perform for eight hours a day. And we captured with ILM and, and their hundreds of cameras every single movement, nuance, the DNA of their movement and their being, as Wayne McGregor puts it. There is a DNA of movement that we all have, of, of your physicality, of your character, of your personality. It comes through with nuances within your face and your body and how you walk and stand, all those little things that we don't really notice. We captured all of that, so we captured their essence. And then we brought that information, that digital information, and developed that into what you then see here. So it's very much them that you are looking at. And as you said to me earlier, you don't want us to see below your skirts. You've got to keep <laughs> some magic back. And I, I, I just want to emphasize what Swan is saying. It's while being very technologically driven, if the audience would have come here and thought, wow, what cool technology, it would have been a yeah. complete failure. Because instead, what has happened partly because we spend so much time on it, but we reach layers and levels of this experience that goes beyond just like, wow, how cool. People feel things here that I think they didn't expect to feel. We have been feeling things here that we didn't expect to feel. So there is an element of voodoo or some kind of magic that takes you on a, on a journey of some kind of philosophical level that we couldn't predict. Of course, we hoped we'd get there, but not until we had built it and actually done it did we know if it was going to happen. There is a layer of, and I don't want to get too pretentious about it, but there is a layer of time and life and death and all kinds of things that happens in here that wouldn't have happened if they had just put on a normal gig. That would have been great, wow, ab are back, but we wouldn't have gone to the place where we ended up with this had they done that. I think the result of what we did here was beyond everyone's expectations and, and it's something really special, if I may say so. I think you're absolutely right and in terms of I would much rather see Aber at their heyday when I was in mine. I mean, so it, it makes you think, there they are, young, and I was watching them when I was even younger, and it, it makes you feel like you haven't kind of aged. <laughs> so it's quite flattering to the viewer, in a way. There are also, though, some live musicians on the stage. Tell us about the band. It was incredibly important to have the music being live. Obviously, the voices of ABBA are old recordings, although we've, you know, lifted them up and, and put them in an audio system that is the best we've ever heard. It needs to be a live concert. And we have a 10-piece band, seven women, three boys, and uh, it's, they're phenomenal. They're absolutely phenomenal. And uh, we found them before COVID, and we obviously got delayed a bit by COVID, as you can imagine. And they've stuck with us, and they've been through the journey with us and the rehearsals and the grueling months before we opened of fine-tuning every single inch of the show and and they are absolutely brilliant and they make this whole thing come alive they are the extra icing on the cake and uh, we're incredibly proud of them we just call them the band <laughs> and so are they singing along are they doing the backing they're playing it live tell us how that part of it works well everything is live except the voices of abba and of course that is then matched to a click track that the the band plays along too which is not a that happens in normal concerts yeah. as well that that the drummer has a click track in her ear and to keep the beat and maybe they have samples and stuff but we we use that click track of course to match up with ABBA that's also not like a particularly advanced 
everything. The only added layer is that everything in this entire space we're in all works to a time code. So everything matches up with that time code, including the live musicians. They're still very much live in the sense that they can, you know, the things can break, they can play the wrong chord, they can sing the wrong note, or they can be extra good or, you know. And I think that the audience feels that. Mm. So like Svana said, it's an incredibly important piece of this to connect, to be that bridge between what's happening in, in the fantasy world and what's happening in, in the space. So we're very happy about those 10 people. If you change your mind take a chance, take on the first in line, honey, I'm still free. Take a chance on me. If you need me, let me know. Gonna be a chance, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. If you got no place to go, when you Another highlight from the Monaco Weekly this week is my chat with Israeli musician Tomer Baruch. He's known for his Instagram account Animals and Synthesizers, which combines nature videos with synth music. His new project, an album called Synthesized Sounds of the Sea, is dedicated to marine life, from octopuses to hairy frogfish. I was fascinated by animals for, for many years. I don't know if I like more than anyone, I guess, People are usually uh, fascinated by animals, like kids are always fascinated by animals. But yeah, so I, I had this thing with with animals that I, I really like them. I, I remember that I had a band when I was like a teenager and I, I all the songs I, uh, I wrote, I gave them like animal names, like the names of the songs. Then afterwards... It, I, I kind of like moved on and then suddenly it came back on Instagram. Like I found like the, all, yeah, there are so many animal videos on Instagram and I thought hmm, maybe I can do something with that, right? It's like a whole genre, animal clips on Instagram. It's like one of the, probably one of the most viewed thing there. And that's what I find it fascinating is the animal clips, but there's some beautiful music in the background. And, and it's so interesting that when you see the video, you kind of understand why you chose those lyrics. But what is the choice? Because, uh, you know, do you think some animals, they need more menacing music, others, they need like a kind of a squelchy uh, synth. Uh, is there any logic to it or do you go with your heart? I think I, I go with my heart or with my... I don't know, sense of aesthetic. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I go through a lot of animal videos. I'm following all the animal accounts on Instagram. Or not because there are millions, but I'm following a lot of them and I, I'm watching a lot of animal videos. And then occasionally uh, uh, one of them is like sparks some imagination and uh, I get like the, uh, I look at it and I'm like, I know what sort of a sound this clip needs are there animals that are a bit harder than others for example i would imagine that birds they would come across to music quite naturally because of course of their of their chirp but it's interesting that in your new album synthesized sounds of the sea i mean I had no idea what a what a hairy frogfish would sound like, but it kind of makes sense after listening to it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, for me, the, the the most important element of a video is the motion. 
right? I mean, there is the, the, there is the color and the vibe and the, the atmosphere, but, but the, the thing that really helps attach sound to a, to a video is motion. So, so for me, any animal that has an interesting way of moving is something that I can work with. And when an animal is very static, then it's obviously it's, it's a bit harder to really make an interesting score to it. So yeah, the higher frogfish is, I mean, it's a really funny animal, but the, the, the thing that really got my attention was the way that it's kind of walking on the floor of the ocean, right? It has like this kind of a jerky walk. So I think that that was the thing that uh, made me find the, 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 the music that I thought would fit. And let's talk about the new album, Synthesize Sounds of the Sea. I know on your Instagram account, you know, we have dogs, birds, all sorts of animals, but the album is very much focused on marine life, right? Yes. I can say that, uh, I mean, a while ago, I thought that I want to make an album out of this, do something that is expanding like this, this, this project and going a little bit out of this medium of Instagram. And I, I was trying to think how to make it a coherent piece, because if you go on my Instagram, it's kind of eclectic. There are lots of clips that each of them sounds quite different because the music is trying to work with the video and the videos are different. So the music is also different. So I thought, how can I make it into one piece? And I thought if I focus just on, on marine life, then it kind of gives a certain vibe to all the music, right? Even if there are different animals, they still have this sort of a, a underwatery atmosphere. It's, it's a little bit more chilled. It's a little bit more... Uh, uh, slow and ambient and there is like textures. So I thought that if I focus on just one sort of a, like one environment, then I will also get certain sounds and this will make it into like a, a, a real album and not just like a, a collection of pieces of music. And, you know, we're talking here about synthesizers as well, but listening to the album, I can see a lot of influences as well. In the single that we were just mentioning, the hairy frogfish and the, and the finger dragnet, right? I could even mm -hmm. spot a little bit of kind of old school hip hop in there as well, which kind of completely makes sense. Uh, yes, definitely uh, old school hip hop uh, for sure. And uh, Jay Dilla was the, I mean, the, I took the kind of, syncopated or you know like the jerky beat the not equal beat i took it from the from the movement of the frogfish but of course i also took it from like this style of uh, jay dilla hip-hop that all, all the beats are a little bit quirky or a little bit out of uh, sync so yeah it's like a whole tradition in like early 2000s of, of making like these beats which are a bit off I really enjoyed uh, the interludes as well, I have to say. They, they, you know, they're very short, but you did one for sharks, which I, I thought it was quite elegant and haunting at the same time. And the garden use, it was very funny, very kind of, kind of robotic uh, noises as well. I really enjoyed that one. 
Ah, thank you. You saw the videos also, or just yes, the, I saw. Yeah, because we have ah. to tell people. I mean, you, you, on 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 YouTube, I think people can also see kind of videos of some of the tracks, right? That's that's the point you wanted to do as well, right? Yeah, it's like an it's an audiovisual album, and then I was I was kind of questioning, like, should I put in this sort of uh, like also like some really like interludes that are short and it's just more sound design than music uh, or like does it work as only audio or does, does it only work as video but eventually I decided to 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 put it also in the audio version and I think it's interesting I don't know what, what do you think <laughs> did, did you like it also as audio I, like I when you I think so because some animals you know for example sharks perhaps a bit too obvious to have the full song but let's have a little interlude I think I think it was super nice and I think it matches the imagery as well and and and, and listen Tomer there's I I love animal videos and it, but it's hard spot a good one there's so many out there to choose um, do, do they know the people that make those videos as all well, that they are in this kind of interesting project have you been approached by some people say oh you know what I, I, I love now that you know this fish video that I did is it's in this beautiful uh, album here yeah they are they know I, I asked to use their video so they know and some of them are really like it. They are, yeah, they, uh, yeah, for sure. Some of them are, are excited by it. Others, they don't care so much. They are like, yeah, it's cool, whatever. <laughs> uh, Do you have a favorite animal, perhaps, of the CEO or, or a favorite track from the album? Because another one that I was going to highlight here, I think the Blanket Octopus, a great one. <laughs> I, I think my favorite track of the album is Starfish. Uh, yeah, I think I, I really like it. Because of the, yeah, I was really, I, I thought, I think I really managed to give it like this sort of a Plantasia vibe, which I thought is like kind of a, you know, you know this album Plantasia by Mord Garçon? Oh yes, is it from the 70s? Yeah, from the 70s. Mm. It's an uh, album dedicated to plants. Right? So I thought that it's it's a little, this album is a little bit of a tribute to Plantasia. It's like the the, the animal version of Plantasia. Uh, because in Plantasia, like every track is dedicated to a plant. And in this album, every album is that every track is dedicated to a, to an animal. And, and this one, Starfish, is really like the most influenced by, by that 70s old school sound. Um, but I think that in terms of like uh, the animal, which, which animal I like the most. So yeah, definitely the blanket octopus is such a magnificent animal. I, I remember when I first saw that video, I was shocked. I was like, <laughs> this is unbelievable. It's impossible that this sort of a thing exists. You are listening to The Curator. Time now for Food Neighborhoods. This time we have a recipe by the chef behind Bangkok's Potong restaurant. My name is Pam. I own a restaurant in Bangkok, Thailand called Restaurant Potong. And it's a traditional progressive Thai Chinese cuisine. And what 
I'm gonna share for you today is a basic recipe that my mom's always cook for me. The ingredient seems a little bit much, but actually, if you got all the ingredients, it's really easy to make this recipe. I would call it mapo tofu. It's a tofu dish with can go with eaten with rice and eaten alone. Also, it's good and it's one of my favorite tofu dish of all. So what you need is mapo spice. You need green Szechuan pepper, red Szechuan pepper, and peppercorns. So that's the mapo spice. And I would toast them first until it's really aromatic. And this step is really important because it brings the soul of mapo tofu out. Once you toast it, you grind it. You can use a mato pestle or you can grind it with a blender at home. And then after that, separately in a wok, you pour in a little bit of vegetable oil or canola oil, or would be better if you have lard. You use around like two to three tablespoon of the oil, and then you add in your chopped ginger, garlic, and scallions. Mix a little bit until it's give out a really nice smell. And then you would add chili bean paste. It's easy to find in supermarket. It's a red paste with beans and a little bit salty. You add that in around two tablespoon, and then stir it in with everything until the oil itself turns red. That means it's ready. And then you would add ground pork and your mapo spice. And a little bit of stock, like two cups of stock, and then you would add your tofu. But my secret trick is that when you buy your soft tofu, you cut it, and you have to blanch it in salted water first to get rid of that, you know, grassy smell from the tofu. And then once you add the tofu in, it becomes like soup. Then you would add your slurry. Slurry is a mixture of water and cornstarch. You can do one one to one ratio. Stir the cornstarch in water until it's mixed, and then add that in your mapo tofu mix while you have your fire on, so the soup becomes thickened. What you're looking for is a thick gravy consistency, and then once you have the consistency, you season. With soy sauce, and if you like to it to be more spicy, you can add more chili flakes, and then to finish everything, you add sesame oil, and then that's it. Just put it in a bowl and enjoy with jasmine rice. And for Monaco on Design Extra, we visit Geneva City Hall, a newly revamped by architecture firm Bonhote Zapata, to help foster dialogue and democracy. Perched on a hill in a historic neighborhood, Geneva City Hall has been the seat of cantonal power since the 16th century. The building itself has never been a finished object. Over the course of 500 years, there has been constant new additions responding to new needs. And the latest of those was identified in 2011, when the city held a competition to reimagine the parliamentary rooms and chamber for the first time since an ill-fated interior fit-out in 1958. 
The commission was awarded to Geneva-based design studio Bonhut Zapata, who set about creating a government building that goes beyond simply setting policy for the Swiss city. The project is about opening the space up, which is felt most profoundly in the main council chamber. In the lofty hall, the architects have added an eye-catching, multifaceted, oak-slatted structure, which covers the space. It reaches up towards the roof, where a new skylight fills the room with natural light, a glow that is complemented by an elaborate lighting system from Lebanon's PS Lab. The theme of transparency continues with the removal of existing stained glass windows, which, while beautiful, didn't allow for much natural light to flow in. They've been replaced by translucent panes that now allow the deputies to look out on the metropolis that they're responsible for, while also allowing their electorate to look into the building when the parliament is in session. The personal responsibility of every deputy is also enhanced by the fact that, rather than sitting along a bench, as is typical in many parliaments, each has their own desk and walnut armchair by Finn Yule. Significantly, the chamber was also reconfigured into a semicircular seating plan, a much friendlier layout than the previous arrangement, which placed politicians opposite each other. Moving beyond the main hall, the Bonhut Zapata team also revitalised a number of other rooms in the building, including the welcome chamber, where it uncovered and restored the room's original shape, and the parliament's cafe, chancellery and administration offices. Each space has distinct characteristics, but they're beautifully united by a consistency of materials. A robust selection of green marble, brass, oak and walnut is deployed throughout, with additional lighting from Parachilna. The result is a cohesive environment that's representative of good government. Open and transparent, efficient in the use of resources and built with the long term in mind. But it's also a place that, thanks to the abundance of natural light and the warmth of the oak and walnut, feels incredibly welcoming, calming and set up for dialogue and diplomacy. This is the kind of intuitive design that allows for good governance, something we hope that the politicians sitting here respond to with enthusiasm. Well, that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show is produced by Jack Jewers and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week for more great interviews. Thanks for listening.